Hello, this is Ellis Prince, the pastor of the Gallery Church of Baltimore. I want to thank you for joining our podcast today. I hope this teaching inspires you and gives you courage to pursue Jesus Christ. I hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. If we can help you in any way, please feel free to reach out. Now let's get back to the podcast. All right, and so today we'll be reading from John 7, 1 through 52, Uh, and I'll kick us off. So Jesus goes to the Festival of Tabernacles. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea uh, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he, said, after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he, also, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Jesus teaches at the festival. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. How Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Division over who Jesus is. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him and he sent me. 
At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let, every, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Unbelief of the Jewish leaders. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. That was uh, quite a long text to read. Uh, did you guys uh, find that Nicodemus made another appearance in here from a couple of weeks ago? Poor guy. They, I don't know if you caught it, but to say, is he, are, you, are you too from Galilee um, an insult? Did you guys pick up on that? That wasn't a compliment. That would almost be like, are you from the other side of the tracks kind of a statement. Uh, how many of you in here like the game of chess? Like the you know, black and white board, things like that. Um, so th obviously some of you, but are all of you aware of the game? All right. So like this chapter to me reads like we were watching a chess match. Because there are some very significant characters that we would even define as a king, Jesus that is trying to be protected because um, in the very opening verses, it says that they were trying to what? Kill him. Like there was already a movement of people that are trying to kill him. So they're looking to checkmate him. But there's also these religious leaders that really think that God is a king, but yet he is, you know, ruling through them. And so they feel like somebody is trying to check them. 
And then there's these pawns, like the temple courts, the community are surrounded by people. And it's like these people are like, can you believe what Jesus is doing? And we believe in Jesus. And it just, it just makes total sense to us. But then people on this side that would find themselves in the back row are like, man, those people are ignorant. They, they, they're blindly fine. Like, what do they know? Like, the, the, the insults are being hurled as they're looking to move three spaces forward and two spaces over as they're trying to move towards Christ. So there's like this epic battle of named and unnamed people. And you and I, because of the way John has written this, are actually like peering over their shoulder, which how many of you in here like now like it when you're working and somebody's looking over your shoulder? All right. I am so grateful that in this moment, John is allowing us to have an epic perspective of something that's going on. So I entitled this teaching, A Unique Promise and a Unique Vocation. Because if the metaphor, now mind you, as a pastor, can I just tell you, unless the metaphor came from Jesus, it really starts to break down very quickly. So the chess game isn't the best metaphor. But I wanted to have something that I think we could all find an identity in, because everybody's on the board. We're all on the board. We're all playing a part. And whether we like it or not, we're either aligned with King Jesus or we might be in a force that's against King Jesus. And John is trying to help us be aligned. And so let me pray. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that right now, um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we can be fully present in this text, and that your will and way is done. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Nick, can I borrow you for a second? Because I need a little bit of muscle. Um, it's not all that heavy, but it's more of a coordination drill. Um, we're just going to set this on the yellow portion of the carpet for me, because I'm going to need it as a prop here in a minute. Oh, very well. Look at that. Thank you. Not only a great reader, you can... All right. You're coordinated. Um, that's good. Okay. So with that, let me, let me jump in here. We're not Jewish, right? Remember, I talked about John including a lot of parenthetical statements in the text because he knows that Jewish people and non-Jewish people were going to be reading his letter. And so there's times where he just tells it, but then he's like, wait a minute, a Gentile won't understand this. And so he either will put something that we've translated in our English into a parenthesis statement, or he'll just flat out explain it. That's happening redundantly in this passage. And one of the things I don't want to go by and assume that we all know in here, but the Jewish people were chosen by God to be a representation of him in the world. Not to be favored in the sense of, I am the loved child, you are the unloved child, but just totally favored in the sense that God asked them to do something very special. It doesn't mean that God loved Israel more than the other people on the planet. But a lot of times when you and I find ourselves reading through the Old Testament, we can find a spirit amongst the people that they were very thankful that God had picked them to the point of pride, to the point of um, arrogance, to the point of making a lot of bad decisions many times thinking, oh, God's going to go wherever I go because I am one of his chosen. And then they get back after a battle is lost and they go to the prophet or to the priest and whatever story we're finding. And they're like, why didn't God give us victory? And then God speaks to them, well, I didn't tell you to go there. 
well, don't you just go with us? And, and like, so there were even moments where they would take the Ark of the Covenant and where the presence of God was and they would use it inappropriately and they thought, oh, if we just take this box and place it in the field, we'll automatically get a victory because it worked once, so it should work again. And rather than them loving God, they wanted to manipulate God to their own prideful reasons. And so there's a lot of that understanding that's happening in and around this text. But there's also a group of people that understand the promises of God and they are looking for the promises of God because they knew they had a forgetting problem. And so the nation of Israel had these festivals that they would literally throw for a week at a time. And as many people as possible would participate. And so the three primary festivals that are generally referenced in the New Testament is the one that we're currently in in John 7, which is called Sukkot or tabernacle, or shelters. I'll explain that more in a minute. And then there's another one that we just celebrated as a church back in early June with other churches that's called Shavuot, which is Pentecost, which is the 50 days of uh, um, after Passover when the Ten Commandments were given, or Torah in their tradition, the Jewish people, they had a, a celebration festival of the day that the Torah came to them and as they viewed it as through Moses. So they would take and celebrate 50 days after Passover, the giving of Torah in a, in a, uh, a, a festival called Shavuot. And then there's the uh, Pesach or the Pentecost, the Passover, uh, sorry, the, the Passover where they were celebrating their freedom, going back to the night of the 10th plague, that the blood on the doorpost caused the angel of death to pass over, and then Pharaoh gave them their freedom by saying, we're no longer, I'm no longer going to fight against God, I'm going to send you out. And not only did they send them out, it says that the people of Egypt gave them gold and silver and precious stones and all this stuff. So not only were they moving their belongings, people are throwing items on their cart. And these people are now carrying out of Egypt all of their wealth. And so they had these festivals to help them to never forget. I, I, I want us to understand the point of the festival was for them to never forget God amongst them. And so we find Jesus in this particular festival. And so whether it was the brothers at the beginning trying to convince Jesus to go with them, or Jesus showing up midweek, or all the things that began to transpire where they were talking about Jesus and then Jesus interjects. Have you ever been talking about somebody and they heard you? Some of you were like, oh yeah. <laughs> I, there was one time that I actually was talking about somebody in an email and I sent it to the person I was talking about rather than the person that should have received it. One of the worst days in my life um, as a leader. I got you. Oh no, listen, it's, you don't have to always give all the... <laughs> all right, but this is like... This is one of those moments where if my wife and I were playing the newlywed game and, they, and, and, the, and the, the host was to ask us, what is the worst mistake your husband's ever made in his profession? She would say the day he sent this email. 
It was one of the worst days of my life, all right? Um, one of those things where you just, you need to be thinking and what you're saying and to whom you're saying it to, and my filters were off that day, and it was just a massive mistake. Sought forgiveness, friend. But here's my point, is that you and I can just totally get distracted and we find ourselves going in all the wrong directions. We can find ourselves um, knowing the right thing to do, but in, when, in, in a moment of fatigue and tiredness, we don't do the right thing. But yet we know it. And then we kick ourselves for it. Like, why? I knew better. And so, so we have these moments in this chapter, and there's too much to go through. So let me just jump to this. The world does not enjoy being told that it is radically out of line. Can I just, can I just speak that as a true fact? Because there is a term here about the world in John and John is, is using that picture to define the cultural norms that the spirit of this world has imposed upon people. And so people think that, the, in, in this context, is that the world was a worldview that was anti-God. Therefore, when Jesus was revealing the one true God, they wanted to kill him because the world can't stand the creator, the intender, the designer, because it likes it broken and doesn't want it to be fixed. And so there's this culture amongst us where the world thinks we should have the right to do certain things, but God is like, I'm the designer. You're not in the right. And generally, those conversations don't go very well. And that's what's happening here in John 7. There are those that are like, God is God. He has the right. And then there's others that are like, I like my opinion better. I want it to be this way. I don't care what God thinks. And so there's a tension of this happening. But here's what's happening in John 7. They are realizing that the doctor that can diagnose the problem is present. And so they are trying to say, wait a minute. I'm being told my life is out of line and it's sick and it's dying and the person that literally understands and knows how to define this is physically present with us. Not just like we have the spirit of God, we have the Bible, we have each other, we have all this church tradition, but Jesus was there, the designer, the architect of life the way it was intended for the good. And then we find that they were like, what? And so we find in verse 18, another side chess move that's going on because we see that the brothers of Jesus wanted Jesus to go because they wanted to capitalize on the attention Jesus was receiving. The problem is, is that the brothers wanted to capitalize on Jesus's fame and power and popularity, and they could care less about the God who sent Jesus. I want you guys to find that tone in this chapter. When you go back this week and you reread chapter seven every day, I think the more that you read it, you're gonna find that these brothers aren't well-intended. These brothers aren't there to say, come on, Jesus, let's, you know, you've gone to a million followers. Like, let's, let's, let's look for some advertising and let's just capitalize on this moment. Now, Jesus delayed 
Because he knew if he went with the brothers, it was going to be all about him. And can I tell you guys this? Jesus always said, it's not about me. It's about what my father is doing. It's about my father's will. It's about my father's way. And so the way that John 7 plays out with this moment of I'm not going to do it my brother's way is Jesus being resolute in the fact that it has to be about God and it has to be about the Father. It can't be about me. And can I tell you guys, I've said this repeatedly throughout this summer. There's a reason why a lot of churches turn people off to Jesus. It's because it's all about them. They're not there to make glory of God. They're there to glorify themselves. So they do that sometimes by being an overprotected bubble of Christians, and they have no room for new people. They even don't even give off an aroma of hospitality. Others are so proud of their economic achievement and their oneness in their economic and education that when, when somebody that doesn't fit into that economic class finds their way in, they smell a stench like, oh, I'm sorry, you don't, your W-2 doesn't match my W-2, then I can't be in community with you. And so there's so many ways in which, whether it's economic, it's educational, it's geographic, it's skin color, it's all these different ways that Jesus is saying, we are one in Jesus Christ, period, no exceptions. But the church hasn't always acted that way because it's been about us and our image. And Jesus is in this passage saying to what I believe us as a church today is, are we focused on God the Father or are we focused on ourselves? Do we want to be known or do we want him to be known? Is it about his reputation or is it about my reputation? So with that, all of this is happening in this passage and I can't spend any more time on it. But Jesus is with his brothers here, wanted it to be about the father. The crowd wanted it to be about Jesus and not the father. But often people look at Jesus and draw conclusions about him based upon faulty ideas of God that have been given to them from the spirit of this world. So the Christian message, and this is why we come to church every week, or at least we, we watch online or we try to track, is because the Christian message insists that people must learn afresh who God is, what the world is, and who we ourselves are by looking at Jesus. That's why going through the Gospel of John is so important, because Jesus is the only one that's ever been on this planet that has totally submitted himself to the Father's will. So if you and I want to know what it looks like to totally submit ourselves to the Father's will, we have a fantastic example. Steph Curry this week was over at UMBC doing shooting drills and dribbling drills and all this kind of stuff and showing off his practice habits and all this kind of stuff. And why would a university like UMBC partner with Under Armour to pay Steph Curry an astronomical amount of money to come do a cameo on their campus? Because when it comes to shooting the basketball, there's only one person in a NBA all-star game that has ever made more three-pointers in a competition than him, and it was the young lady who did it this summer for the WNBA, right? And so if you want a great example of how to shoot three-pointers, there's a male and a female example that you can drop, but the problem is Under Armour doesn't sponsor the female. Um, and so with all of that, we look for examples of people that do it right. And how did they do it right? 
And so much so that we give them money to produce movies and documentaries about themselves so that we learn about how the little guy can, be, can, can function in a land of trees, right? And so that's Steph Curry's story. Like a, a, a small figured individual that wasn't, like you look at a LeBron James and you just realize that God just touched him at birth. <laughs> I mean, like, he, like he's just a big athletic man and he did nothing to be that way. Now he's utilizing that frame to capitalize, to be excellent at it, but he was given an unfair advantage, <laughs> Right? by God. Steph Curry, barely six feet tall, barely 160 pounds, 170 pounds, playing in the NBA. People are like, how do you make it? How have you not just made it? You're arguably in the top 10 players of all time. Like you've, you've made all these, like people want to be around people that have made it. And can I just say this as a church? Why do we not want to eat up Jesus? Why do we not have the same desire to be like him as many people have to be like a professional athlete? Because even those professional athletes aren't as good as Jesus was at being human. There is no better example in any category of understanding. Nobody has ever done the role better in any marketable way than Jesus Christ. But too many of us come to church and our focus isn't Jesus. Our focus is so many other things other than Jesus. And what John is saying here is it is all about Jesus. So there's this festival that Jesus did not go to at the beginning. It's a seven-day festival called Sukkot or shelters or tabernacles. And to a Jewish community, this was the fall celebration. So harvesting was happening. It's not always the highest attended because some people's crops weren't fully in yet. So they couldn't take the pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. So people were setting up these temporary shelters all over their properties, their farms, they weren't living indoors. They would use these special tree branches to make these special houses. So a lot of Jewish people will get married under a hoopah, which is like a temporary shelter to represent the spirit of the living God. And they're underneath of that covering and this, the presence of God present in that. And so you'll find in September and October, you'll see these temporary shelters popping up in the Jewish communities around Baltimore. And generally nowadays, they just eat a meal in it. But back in Jesus' time, they not only ate meals in it, they would live in them for the week. And they would remember where they once were and how they moved into houses they didn't build and how they took in, uh, into a land that they really were just given and that everything they have is from the Lord. And so let's go back to our origins so that we remember the blessings that God has. So there's this festival going on where they are remembering the favor of God that they didn't send the rain. They do nothing to cause it to rain. And the rain comes and puts seed and, and fertilizes it and brings a harvest. And because of that harvest, they have what they need. And even many times, if you know Israel's story, they had it to the excess, so much so they could spread it around. So they weren't just harvesting what they needed. Their land was plentiful, so much so that it could be a blessing to so many others. And so the festival had so many traditions built into it that you can't just go to an Old Testament chapter and find all of the different outlines for it. There are places that 
in this first century, the things that they were starting to do and adapt to get a full understanding. And let me paint a quick picture for this. This week when you're reading John 7, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 46, 47 at the end of Ezekiel because there's this picture and this imagery that has been brought into the festival at a time when Israel would come back from exile and the throne in the temple, the, the altars, the foundation of the temple would become such a spring of water that they could leave the temple and walk in it, go a, a few more steps and it would be knee deep, go a few more steps, it would be waist deep, and then go a few more steps and they could only swim in it, so much so that it would go to the Dead Sea and turn it into fresh water. So there's this vision that Ezekiel has that once they come back from exile and once they come back and they experience the freshness of God's spirit moving and the blessings on them, that there's a water source that would come literally from the foundations of this holy ground that they were on that would be so powerful that it could turn the Dead Sea into a place where fish could thrive where trees and vegetation could grow, fruit could be produced, and it was such a powerful, life-giving, fresh water source that the most dead water source on the planet could be turned to new life. And so we find that in Ezekiel 47, but we also find that in John's letter in Revelation in John 22. This final scene when heaven and earth come together and the new Jerusalem comes and this water, this river that literally turns into a blessing that, that overtakes the entire earth. So instead, in this passage, everything being about the altar and the temple, what does Jesus do when he cries out here? He says that fresh water source is now people. So all of their festival understanding, all of their practice, so they've been doing this now for at least three days, and we're going to talk about what they were doing in just a minute. We're actually going to participate in it, so get ready. All of this that they've been practicing, when Jesus calls out on the last day, he takes all of the language of a living water source that could change the Dead Sea into a fresh water source. And he says, for those of you that are thirsty and you drink in me, you will be the spring of water. Now, the issue is, is that many right now aren't even wrapping your mind around that right now. We are so selling Jesus short in our faith. Because there are very few of you right now that feel like you are a freshwater source for other people. But Jesus said, if you drink me in, you'll become a freshwater source for other people. He doesn't say you'll become a freshwater source because you're going to have excellent finances, you're going to have a great marriage, you're going to have great friends, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. He just says, whatever life throws at you, you are going to be the one that brings life into dead areas. And so with all of that, this is all such a, a powerful moment. We're finding that the priests would literally leave and go out to the pool of Siloam, which we're going to be in in John chapter 9 in just a few uh, weeks, actually two weeks, which can I tell you, John 9 is like one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, and it falls on Labor Day weekend. So I'm just telling you guys, you better be here. Cancel your plans. I don't care if you can't get your refund back from Airbnb. Um, at least watch online. I love John chapter 9. It's so powerful. But Siloam means gentle flowing waters. So the priests would leave the temple 
every day and get a gold pitcher and would get water from the pool of Siloam and walk back in and pour it on the altar. And when I say it that way, it sounds so simple and so mundane. But then they would also have these other priests that would go and get branches from four different trees. And they would hold these branches, not like the little branches that are over here in the corner, but these massive branches. And then they would have a cadence with those branches. And a lot of us don't know cadence marching because we're removed from military or our bridal procession is just the women walking down the aisle to a rhythm. Of, and so we really don't. But the high priest literally would start to the left and then they would start to the right and then they would start to the left and then they would start to the right. Now imagine a 15, 20 foot branch in the arm with a rhythm like that, swaying, walking into the temple in front of a priest carrying a pitcher, the sound of the reeds. So much power in the imagery here. And so not only would the wind be represented by the sound of the reeds and the water representing the life-giving spirit of God that was being poured out on them, they understood that their blessings and their favor were coming from God, and that's why they were there. And so then when they would start this, you know, march with the reeds and the water was coming in, they had a flute. What's the person that plays the flute? Is it a flutist? How do you say it? Flautist? I'm so distracted by that right now. This person would stand up and play the flute. So mind you, there's this you know, rhythm of this stepping with these reeds. And then one person, out of probably 50 to 100,000 people around the temple, one flute, flautist, would begin to play and that person was referred to as the pierced one. So there's been several days of this happening because they do this reenaction every day. And so Jesus shows up midstream, starts to talk to people midstream, and he's realizing that they got all of this symbolism down about God's spirit, about his Holy Spirit, his word, all of this. And then the real pierced one is in the presence. And then there's this little side conversation about Jesus saying, well, when I leave you, you won't be able to find me. And they're like, well, are Gentiles going to be where you're going? And it's like they're saying everything right, but they had no clue what they were saying. Like, yes, he's going to go save the Gentiles and the Jews, and he's going to disappear where you can't find him, but yet he's going to be accessible to you. And we have a hard time wrapping our mind around this, and they were trying to figure it out, like, where can he go that we can't find him? You know, it's like they had Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible people back then, you know? It's like, so this flautist would lead the procession. The pierced one is blowing and and reenacting the wind, the water, the temple, these willows, they would build a shrine around the temple, the, the, and eventually the priest would walk around the temple and he would pour the water on it. They would also have a, a glass, a, a pitcher of wine, which wasn't to represent the harvest as much as it was to represent the blood from the sacrifice. So it was this water and wine being poured out on the altar. The whole time, this festival was mandatory joy. Okay, so can I go back to what I said just a little bit ago when we were doing our generosity prayer? 
you need a mirror so that you can watch what your joy looks like. Like we need to have something that reminds us of the fact that when I am talking about the generous love of God, it's really hard for me to talk about the generous love of God. He is holy. I can't smile because if I do, he's not holy. Right? But in this festival, if you weren't in the party, you weren't allowed to show up. Everybody singing, celebrating, dancing, enjoying it, drawing from Isaiah 12, verse 3. Look at your screen. Singing out loud while the procession is going on. With joy, we will draw water out of the well of salvation. So the audience has a song. Each one of the festivals I talked about, they had, they had a Spotify playlist to get to Jerusalem. They had a Spotify playlist to get away from Jerusalem. They had different psalms they would sing, chapters that they would go to in their, in their Torah, things that they would say out loud on the journey there, things they would sing out loud while they were there, and then things they would sing on their way away because they were using it to shape their theology and to help them to remember. And so all of this is happening. So the whole audience is, with joy we will draw water out of the well of salvation. For six days, the priests are stepping and swinging, and the flautist is piercing, um, and all the things that they were doing. But then finally, they're circling the altar, and they're all yelling out this song, with joy we will draw water out of the well of salvation. And then the water is poured out. And then Joel chapter 2, it says, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Can you see then why Peter goes to Joel 2 in this same geographic reason in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? And says, today's the day that the spirit is being poured out on all flesh. Like, they had a festival about it. And they were missing it. And Jesus was amongst them. And so, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We are now going to reenact the seventh day of the festival that Jesus was there. And some of you are already smiling. Others, you have doubled down on the straight face. All right? Now, listen, it's okay to loosen those jaw muscles up a little bit. Don't double down. Let it loose. But we are going to participate in this just a little bit because I want you to understand But on the seventh day, they would change the song from Isaiah 12, 3, from with joy we draw water out of the well of salvation, to um, Psalms 118, verse 25, that says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success, success. And so they would shorten it to just save now. Save now. That's all they would say. Save now. So the priest is walking around carrying the pitcher. Save now. Save now. The other priests are dancing with the reeds. And and then there's the flautist. And all of this is happening at the same time. And the whole audience is saying, save now. So the whole audience says, save now. All right. So here we go. So I'm going to make seven trips around the altar. All right. And the entire time, we're going to have a fake flautist. We're going to have a fake... Does anybody want to be the dancing section? Anybody? Like even, if, even if you're in your chair and you switch from the right cheek to the left cheek a little bit, just be in it a little bit. But at the whole time, all of us have to just say save now and save now over and over again, okay? So I'm going to go to Salome, all right? We're going to go and get these, this holy water and I'm going to come back in and you're going to say save now, okay? And I'm going to walk around this and each time I go around this, I want you to say save now with a little bit more intensity. 
But when I raise the pitcher up after the seventh trip, that's the sign that it's about ready to be poured out and the audience would go dead silent. Okay, so I'm going to practice it one time. We're going to say save now three times with intensity. I'm going to raise this up and then you drop silent, okay? Even you online, I want to hear you. All right, so here we go. All right, save now, save now, save now. All right, very good. All right, so the pull of Salome is the piano, all right? And so there's the read people, all right? I'm the one in the back with the picture, so I can't do that. All right, oh, there's the, all right, yeah, all right, I got some, I got some, all right? And then there's the flautist, all right? And the whole time it's save now. You guys are doing much better than I thought you would. That's, this is the second trip. Third trip. Fourth. Five. Can you imagine at the climax of the saving now, a voice in the crowd at the moment that the audience falls silent, just screams out with intensity that he is the source of everything that they're celebrating. I don't know what your experience has been in church, in faith. And if it has in any way not been life-giving, can I just tell you I'm sorry for however we've damaged that? Because Jesus hasn't damaged it. The Father hasn't damaged it. The Holy Spirit hasn't damaged it. They can't. They're perfect. If there is a lack of faith on our part, it is because the church, us, people, have done something wrong. And so when Jesus is shouting, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, he, it isn't drama. He's not doing a one-act play. He is saying to our weary and parched souls, like he said individually to the woman at the well, you want to have water that will make you never thirst again? He's now saying to everybody that's there, do you want to have water that not only will cause you to never thirst again, I will make you a water source that others will never thirst again. And so Jesus is showing up midstream and he's telling these people, it's not about the building. It's not about the order of service. It's not about the water in Siloam. It's not about the wine on the altar. It's not about the tabernacles we're building. It's not about the rhythm and the flautist. It's not about any of that. It's about me. It's about the love of God on displayed in me. And some of you today, you are just flat out exhausted. You are so 
confused and tired and weary and you're trying to make sense of things and there is a spirit of this world that can't keep you from Jesus, but he's going to want to make you miserable until you see Jesus face to face. I used to share this, and my son had to leave for work, so he was the one that walked all the way around the room when there was a door right there. Um, but he doesn't mind being noticed. Um, please don't anybody tell him I said that. You've already texted him, right, Jafar? Um, There are so many ways that we think God's harmed us. And the reason why that thought's in our head is the same reason why Adam and Eve were standing under a tree and a serpent was whispering in their ears, God's holding out on you. His tactics with us are no different. He is still whispering in our ears. You know how God let you down? Our immediate response should be God never lets us down. But the problem is in our humanity, we do think he has. People we love that aren't here anymore circumstances in our careers that it shouldn't have gone the way that it did. And the harm that we feel in this world, the people right now bracing in Mexico and in Southern California for a hurricane and the damage, the fires in Maui when children were left at home because schools were canceled because of a power outage and the parents were at work and children were at home by themselves and a fire is raging. People are like, God could have done something. It's God's fault. So we come and we look at all of these crises around the world, and if we're not into some sort of conspiracy theory stream of the, the life, we are just constantly saying, well, God could, God should, God could, God should, God could, God should. And we look at John 7, and Jesus is having a conversation with his brothers, well, Jesus, you should. And he's like, no, I can't. And they're like, but you should. And now we've had this moment where like, yeah, Jesus made the right choice. But yet the brothers were disappointed with him all the way up to the end of the seventh day. Because you and I always think we know better what Jesus should do. We do. And then it becomes his fault. When in actuality, Jesus is the one that we need to dive into fully when we have the darkest of moments. That's why I love the way that Summer took us back to Psalm 23 and we're able to sing about this wonderful God that is with us. And, and we, but none of us want to ever go through a valley. We never want to be in darkness. We never want to fear any pain. And I'll tell you this, Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to. Someday. All of this will be finally over and there will be no more suffering. This birth pains era of a child called the church is growing and moving and shaping, but one day it will be fully birthed and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more human hurting human, no more lies, no more hatred, no more selfishness. It'll be a place where we get to have access to the one true God all the time. And we get to look at Jesus face to face and be like, man, I wanted you to be more than a poster on my wall. I wanted to model my life after yours. And he's going to be able to look at us in the face. I'm just praying that he just puts both hands on my shoulders and just looks me in the eyes and just says, Ellis, well done. 
my good and faithful servant. But I'll just tell you this. I've lived long enough that there are people in this world that don't think I'm good. And it breaks my heart. And I promise you there are people in your life that probably don't think you're good. But that doesn't mean that we don't stop striving to look like Jesus. We must keep fighting after it. So today, as our worship team is coming back up, the way I'd love for us to end our gathering is for me just to say this to you. Is, is, it, is Jesus all yours? Are your eyes fixed on him fully? Have you given Jesus your life? If you have never done that, I just want to extend an invitation to you to, for you to just say a simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. Just simply your heart to his and just say, I just feel drawn by your spirit right now to you. And I don't understand it all, but I just, like, save me now. And I hear your voice. So, Jesus, I give you my life. And for those of you that have already prayed a prayer like that, and you are dry and parched and weary, why are you disconnected from Jesus? He's the source of your fresh water. Don't pull back from him because you're experiencing pain. Don't pull back from him because you're confused. He can handle our confusion. Even Summer said earlier that she was able to go to him with some of the hatred that she was feeling in her life. Like, he can handle it. Like, there's, there's honest testimony about the one we're worshiping today that's even been present in this room from the beginning of our gathering. Our God, can, our God is with us. He can handle it. He loves us. He understands us. And he's here to say to all of us, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That includes you. So Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that everyone in here would fix their eyes on you, whether it's their first time or whether it has been a battle of a lifetime. Father, we want our eyes to be fully placed on you. Would you bring life would you allow us to not only have a quenched thirst like was promised to the woman at the well, but would you make us a thirst-quenching life like Jesus? Thank you so much for joining us on the Gallery Church Podcast. I want you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your mind and heart. Let Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, do the deep work that only He can do. I want to say thank you to everyone who gives to the church. Your gifts make this podcast and ministry possible here in Baltimore and other parts of the world. You can be a part of our work by going to gallerychurchbaltimore.com give or by downloading the church app from the app store. You can also subscribe and share these podcasts with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening or watching, and may God's grace and peace be with you.